0: Welcome to the Disney WTF Podcast. I'm a Disney lover who tries to explain the magic to my husband-to-be, fiancé, main squeeze, Richie. Today, we're presenting episodes of The Walt Daily a daily Amazon Alexa flash briefing where we put together Disney facts from anything Disney related with an awesome Disney soundtrack. And for anybody who doesn't have an Amazon Alexa, we are also available on Anchor. So there's two ways you can see Anchor. You can go to www.anchor.fm and search the Walt Daily and our station will pop up and you can listen to the Walt Daily every day, it's updated, or you can download the Anchor app on your preferred app store and you can listen to us that way. So thank you everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the Walt Daily. Hi everyone, today we're going to talk about a true Disney icon, Minnie Mouse. She's not just Mickey's girlfriend. She starred in over 70 cartoon shorts and TV shows and even has three shows currently running on the Disney Channel. She was created in 1928 alongside Mickey Mouse. In her earliest roles, she was dressed as a flapper, a popular look at the time, featuring a short dress and black stockings. In those days, she was often portrayed as very flirtatious and cute, often playing the part as a dancer or musician. By the 1940s, her signature bow made its first appearance and did you know? that in her earliest appearances, she wasn't even wearing her signature shades of red and pink and actually wore combinations of blue, black, and green. That is, when she wasn't being shown on a black and white screen, of course. After the 40s and 50s, Minnie wasn't starring in as many shorts as she used to. It's been said that because of the popularity of other characters who were introduced, like Goofy and Donald Duck, Disney had Minnie sit on the bench while they had some time to shine. That is, until the glorious 1980s. She starred in a TV musical called Totally Minnie, which I definitely had the poster of this on my wall for the better part of a decade. And 1986 was even declared Minnie's year in Disney theme parks. Nowadays, she is an essential friend to all Disney people. So popular, she even has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, joining the likes of Snow White, Tinkerbell, Kermit the Frog, and of course, Mickey Mouse. Hi everyone! Today we're crossing over into the Twilight Zone with some jaw-dropping facts about Tower of Terror. At 199 feet, it's the tallest attraction at Walt Disney World, just missing a height restriction that would have required it to have an aircraft warning light. Being so tall, it has a high visibility from a lot of areas on property, including the Morocco Pavilion at Epcot. So much visibility that Imagineers made it so the ride would blend right into Morocco. The earliest concepts for the ride were in collaboration with Mel Brooks, director of the comedy classic Young Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, for any Mel Brooks fans. The attraction would be based off the movie and be a comedic horror adventure, but Brooks eventually left the project and that idea was scrapped. Imagineers at one point also envisioned actual rooms in the building that guests could stay in. A little too creepy for my taste. Obviously, the concept that Imagineers finally settled on was bringing the Twilight Zone to Disney guests. And boy, did they. The show building is riddled with all kinds of references to the TV classic, from entrance to exit. And I think we can all agree that the ventriloquist dummy right at the exit is definitely one of the scariest parts of the ride. The climax of the ride is several free falls on a haunted elevator. But you're not just free falling. Disney worked in collaboration with an elevator design company so cables would not only bring the elevator up, but also pull it down. So you're actually going faster than a free fall. And one other crazy specific detail about the ride. The pre-show features a little girl singing, it's raining, it's pouring. A nursery rhyme that was first put to music in 1939. The same year that five guests vanished from the elevator of the Hollywood Tower Hotel Hi everyone! Today I'm here with some stats about the real reason why we go to Disney, the food. Let's start the true food icon, the turkey leg. A staggering 1.4 million turkey legs are sold every year at Walt Disney World. And they aren't exactly what you would call a quick treat either. Each leg takes six hours to barbecue and cook. Here's one that I would have never noticed until it was pointed out to me. On Main Street USA and Magic Kingdom, almost all of the food offerings are situated on the right-hand side. It's been said that Imagineers did this purposely because they know that guests tend to walk on the right side of the road. Okay, let's talk about another food icon, the Mickey Premium. Over 3.3 million of these are sold every year. And for anyone else doing the math, that's over 9,000 bars a day. And it's such a simple concept, vanilla ice cream, milk chocolate, and Mickey. Luckily, you can even find them in your resort hotel nowadays. But it goes without saying, there's only one way to eat this bad boy, and it's ears first. There's nothing like homestyle cooking you can get at 50's Primetime Cafe in Hollywood Studios. From the fried chicken to the meatloaf, you really can't go wrong. And apparently, a lot of people feel that way because over 125 servings of meatloaf are sold every day at the restaurant. There are so many dining options at Walt Disney World that if it were its own food company, it would technically be the 45th largest food chain in the entire world. That's a lot of food, but don't worry because Disney doesn't waste thanks to the Disney Harvest Program, which takes food that may have been thrown away and donates it to Feed the Homeless in Central Florida. everyone today i'm here with your disney word of the day today's word is
1: super uh, super uh,
0: super uh... supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Yes, well done, you said it. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's a mouthful to get out, but what does it actually mean? Well, fun fact, it has several meanings. First, let's do the Oxford English Dictionary definition. Taking the roots of the word, it can roughly be defined as an atoning for educability through delicate beauty, or making amends for being capable of learning through delicate beauty. Yeah, that's still pretty complicated for my taste. Let's talk about the real origins of the word. The Sherman brothers created the song for the movie Mary Poppins. They said that this was a word they used to say when they were kids as double talk or gibberish. The song plays in the movie after Mary wins a horse race and is immediately surrounded by reporters who bombard her with questions. According to Mary Poppins, it's a word to use as something to say when you have nothing to say. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 1986. Other definitions include something that is extraordinarily good or something wonderful. Hi everyone! Today I want to take you back to October 1st, 1971. This was the day that Walt Disney World Resort officially opened for business. This included the Contemporary, Polynesian and Fort Wilderness Resorts, and of course, Magic Kingdom. Park general admission on this day was a cool $3.50 and parking was $0.50 per vehicle. With admissions of about 10,000 people, Disney intentionally put opening day in an off-season time, just in case any kinks needed to be worked out. They also didn't officially dedicate the park until October 25th, again, just to make things were running smoothly. So, okay, we're in the park. What rides could we do on opening day? Well, a lot, actually. From Jungle Cruise to Dumbo to the Sky there were over 20 attractions you could enjoy on opening day, including the Country Bear Jamboree, which, fun fact, all of the current scenes you see in today's version were all a part of the opening day version, too. Where could you eat lunch, though? A lot of places. Crystal Palace, Columbia Harbor House, or wait, let's go to the Town Square Cafe, which would later become Tony's Town Square Restaurant. Traversing back and forth all over the park for attractions, dining, retail, it's a good thing we have our guide map, right? Well, not exactly. The guide maps we know today didn't really exist back then. Instead, it was a multi-page newspaper called the Walt Disney World News. The map of the park didn't even appear until page four. Four! It wasn't exactly a detailed rendering of how to get from place to place either. I would have definitely gotten lost. everyone, today we're going to talk about why the Great Movie Ride was such a great attraction. This Hollywood Studios, or dare I say, MGM Studios classic, was one for the ages. As the main opening day attraction at the park, it not only took you through the movies, but was the inspiration to make a theme park about the movies. Imagineers were initially going to put the ride in, wait for it, Epcot, it would have been housed in a pavilion called Great Moments at the Movies. But they felt the concept of the Great Movie Ride was too strong to be just another pavilion in a park. The ride experience started way before you even got into the ride vehicle. It started all the way outside before you get in the queue. The beautiful replication of Grauman's Chinese Theater took you out of Orlando and put you in Hollywood. Roger Rabbit, Jim Henson, and even Mickey and Minnie all had handprints in the pavement outside the theater. It was the best finding a celebrity who had the same hand or foot size that you did, especially if it was Mickey or Minnie. Now, the queue. Oh, the queue. The classic trailers that were playing as you were going through the switchbacks made you want to be in the queue, and of course, they were previews for the movies that you were about to really experience inside the ride. The ride itself took you through movies, old and new, even movies that you've never seen before and before this ride, let's be honest, maybe some that you've never even heard of, you still felt like you were journeying through the movies, as Disney liked to say. And when you were confronted by the bandit or gangster, everyone had a favorite that they hoped to be a part of. And finally, the grand finale of this ride, the clips of amazing movies from the very beginning of movies. The chills that it sent through the audience just watching warrants that the montage itself is a classic in its own right. Great movie ride, you're missed. everyone, today I have some wonderful facts about the iconic partner statue. This statue is designed by Imagineer Blaine Gibson. It features Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse holding hands, with Walt's hand raised up in a motion that many say is him showing Mickey just how many happy people have come to spend time with them today at the park. If you look closely at his hand, you'll see that he has the famous Disney two-finger point, which is said to be a more polite way of signaling, but actually the reason why Walt pointed with two fingers was because he was often holding a cigarette with those fingers. This wasn't the first sculpture of Walt Disney that Gibson had made. He once made a bust of Walt to give him as a thank you gift, but Walt actually refused the gift, believing that sculptures should only be of people who have passed away. Gibson kept that bust in his garage for decades, and it ultimately became the model for the statue. The bust was actually on display in Disney's Hollywood Studios at the TV Hall of Fame, until 2016 when the exhibit was removed. Partners is located in five Disney parks around the world. The statue stands at 6 feet 5 inches, a full 7 inches taller than Walt himself was. has Mickey been animated holding hands with a human? Except in Fantasia, that is, where Mickey shakes hands with the composer, Leopold Stokowski. It is this specific animation that helped Gibson to design how Mickey would hold hands with Walt. Hi everyone! Today I want to take a minute to appreciate five hidden gems of Harambe Village and Animal Kingdom. Y tú, yulie vengo First, let's talk about Harambe's colonial history. Once occupied by European settlers, you can see the remains of a fort wall on the ground when you walk over two sets of white bricks at the entrance. But after a peaceful revolution, the village is now run by the people of Harambe, who have maintained its important status as an East African port village. Okay, now, let's go get a snack at Harambe Market. The real gems here are actually the amazing authentic African spice blends that are added to the food, like the Moroccan Ras al-Hanout on the ribs, or Ethiopian burger. Blend on the shawarma and chicken skewers, and my personal favorite, the madras yellow curry mixed right into the curry batter at Famous Sausages. Let's go just outside the market area. You'll see a drawing of a Mickey Mouse like character. The real gem here is the text underneath reading, Fichwa Fellow. Fichwa in Swahili is the verb for to be hidden, which is the craziest thing because this Mickey Mouse is so not hidden at all. All right, next up is another theming detail. There are a lot of buildings in Harambe that are for hotels. That's because in addition to being an important import-export resource, the village has noticed a heavy influx of travelers and tourists who need to be accommodated, just like us. And finally, how about a little vocabulary lesson? Tamu tamu refreshments means sweet, sweet refreshments in case you are craving a sweet treat. Dawa from Dawa Bar is translated into medicine. So literally, you can go to the medicine bar for something to wet your whistle. And finally, harambe translates into working together. Definitely something local villagers have done to make this an amazing place to be. Hi everyone, today I have some amazing secrets behind the Country Bear Jamboree. Bear Jamboree was one of the last attractions Walt Disney helped to personally develop. Original plans for the attraction was to be a show at a Disney ski resort in Mineral King, California outside of Sequoia National Park. Yeah, Disney was going to build a ski resort complete with a five-story hotel, tennis courts, and ice skating with a variety show featuring the country bears. The ski resort never came to fruition and ultimately the premiere of the attraction was opening day at Magic Kingdom in 1971. Eighteen bears star in this foot Stomping Hoedown. Wonderful for any country music lover, or anyone really. Here's something crazy. This was the first ride to be in Walt Disney World first before being replicated at Disneyland. Typically, it's the other way around, like with the Mad Tea Party, Peter Pan's Flight, Snow White's Scary Adventures, but not in the case of the country bears. Everyone has a favorite bear, from Trixie to Henry, Gomer to Teddy Vera. but there is one bear who steals the show every time, and that's Big Al. He was voiced by country music star Tex Riddle singing the hit album, Blood on the Saddle. Today, country bears can be seen in Magic Kingdom and Tokyo Disneyland in Grizzly Hall. The building is consistent with the way a hall of this nature would look in the year 1898. In the raised wooden sidewalk before you enter, yeah, that's also a historically accurate detail. When you enter, don't forget to look down to see the bear claw markings across the wooden floor. Clearly, the bears that went in before you were scratching to get it. Hi everyone! Today I want to take you back to a time when the promise of Vikings and Trolls meant the ultimate stateside Norwegian adventure. We're going to take a quick look back at the cult classic attraction, Maelstrom. From the loading area, you could tell that Maelstrom was different. And I say different with all the love that you should say about something that has become a cult classic for a reason. The mural by the dock showed that apparently winds only ever come out of the west in Norway, from the time of the Vikings to the time of Norwegian cruise line. As you leave the dock and ascend the first lift, you encounter the voice of Odin, who in Norse mythology is associated with all kinds of things, from the gallows, to royalty, to the alphabet. Something that always got me about his message, though, was this warning about peril and adventure adventure, but then he's like, don't worry, because the country is super beautiful. The ride tried so hard to show us so much in just a few minutes, and I really appreciate that. History, mythology, and real life while riding a viking ship. That's a really ambitious task, Disney. It didn't give two hoots about smooth transitions through the storyline of the ride either. Which I guess kind of plays to what Odin was saying in the beginning of the ride. So you're seeking peril with trolls, but oh, look at this charming fjord right after. Or almost getting attacked by a polar bear, but then you're at the oil rig and safely coast into the town right after. For the record also, I sincerely believe that where others might have considered the spirit of Norway video 80s and outdated, that it was actually an arthouse film meant to age like a fine wine and would really be most appreciated after it's gone to live forever in youtube lore oh maelstrom if you only knew what you meant to disney fanatics and how the ship taking a peek outside in the middle of the ride was actually the best thing ever you will be missed Today we're going to talk about the greenhouse in Living with the Land.
1: Just make believe you're a tiny little
0: seed. Living with the land is a classic gem at Epcot. You know that, I know that, but did you know these awesome things about the greenhouse? First, this part of the ride is actually divided into four separate greenhouses and one aqua cell. Disney also likes to call them living laboratories. The overall message of this ride is sustainability and how we can create crop opportunities and increase yield by innovations in technology. The aqua cell is where you can find a mini fish farm right in the middle of living with the land. Who knew that fish were actually considered a crop? From to shrimp to tilapia. Some of the fish harvested here are even served in the coral reef restaurant next door in the living seas. The tropics greenhouse is exactly what it sounds like, housing both exotic and more familiar crops like bananas and pineapples. Next up is the temperate greenhouse, also exactly how it sounds, showcasing plants that grow well in temperate temperatures like pumpkins and sunflowers. Then there's the string greenhouse, which focuses on growing technologies in high-density crop areas. This is where you'll see Epcot show off vertical growing techniques where plants are grown on artificial structures that are meant to mimic the shape of a tree. It's also the room on your journey where you'll find a hidden Mickey made of lettuce, so definitely look out for that next time you're sailing through. Most of the produce that's grown in this room, including eggplants and cucumbers, go on to be used in sunshine seasons, the quick service location adjacent to living with the land, and the garden grill, the character dining experience in the land. Finally, there's the creative greenhouse. Here, you'll see plants flying through the in an aeroponic system that hangs plants from a conveyor belt and, and sprays so nutrients right on the roots. This is the greenhouse where you'll also get a chance to peek into let's a biotechnology lab, an actual working sterile research environment above. where actual working let's USDA land. scientists can be found making advancements in crop improvement. Let's
1: listen to the land we all Nature's plan will shine above. Listen to the land.
0: everyone, today I'm here with some fun facts about Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. This resort is like no other on Disney property. The resort grounds are not just for resort guests, but for over 200 animals living on property. There are three savannas in total at the lodge the sunset, Arusha, Hindi for calm, bright, and sun, and Uzima, Swahili for full of life. At least two of the savannas are open for viewing 24 hours a day. The only time that the savannas are closed are for two hours daily for cleaning. At this resort, you're actually not allowed to have balloons on property because of the animals animals. So, just a heads up, your awesome balloon that you got at the park, you'll have to check that at the front desk. Another way this resort takes care of its animals is by keeping the exterior grounds basically free of artificial light at night. This is done so the animals can maintain their natural sleep patterns. The resort was designed by Peter Dominic, the same architect who designed Disney's Wilderness Lodge. He stated that the lodge will be designed to evoke the profound adventure of the epic of life, dawn, dusk, the edge of light, an elegant journey to the pristine wilderness, ancient civilizations, and a vast landscape. The lobby in the Jumbo House is a massive five stories tall. It houses restaurants, rooms, a spectacular view of the savannah, and an extensive collection of African art. The art in the lodge includes many things from intricate masks, to beadwork, to other artifacts, some of which date back to 8500 BC. Something you might not notice about this resort unless you search for an aerial view is the horseshoe layout of the building. Disney, always thinking, did this purposely as as a specific theming detail. In many villages in Africa, the huts are arranged in this horseshoe layout to keep their animals and livestock safe within the boundaries of the village. The arrangement is called crawl, which has a similarly derived word we're familiar with, corral, or corralling the animals. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to a very special episode of Disney WTF. Please let us know what you think and reach out to us because we would love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Medium, Instagram. Email us at DisneyWTF at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a very magical day.